Welcome to Season 10 of the Art of Teaching Podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. Today I have the opportunity to introduce you to a conversation I had with the amazing Dr. Nathaniel Swain. Nathaniel is a teacher, instructional coach, researcher and writer. He is passionate about language, literacy and learning and effective and engaging teaching for all students. In addition to his experience as a teacher, he is a senior lecturer of learning sciences and learner engagement at La Trobe University School of Education. In this interview, we talked about many things, including his lessons from musical theatre, the importance of putting yourself out there, and why his mum was right all along. I hope that you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Nathaniel Swain, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Where are you phoning in from? I'm in um, Wurundjeri country in Melbourne's um, north. Fantastic. I uh, miss Melbourne. The conversation we were having before we hit record is I was very privileged to do a master's down there and it feels so much like home, especially as it comes into the winter months. What's it like at the moment down there? It is getting very cold down here. So um, I don't know why a Sydney cider would be saying they, they're missing um, the, the weather in Melbourne, but that, yeah, that is well, possible, I guess. I, I was actually <laughs> born in the UK, and so I think uh, that's probably uh, there you go. why. Uh, um, probably the most important question uh, for our conversation, what's your coffee order for when I can finally zip down there and buy your coffee? I don't know how much you Melbourians love their coffee. We do. Um, a small latte at the moment. It used to be a three-quarter. And before that, it was a piccolo, which is um, less milk again. So I've, I've gradually added more milk over the years, which is interesting. And do you have a local cafe that you frequent? I've got a great cafe at La Trobe at the campus I've just joined. And they've, they know me by name now. So I just go in. I don't have it's to worrying, say anything. That, like, yeah. yeah, it's a complete addiction. Amazing. And is there an item that is still on your bucket list? I would love um, to do a big trip with my wife. Like I've um, studied a lot um, post school and I've done a lot of the the hard yards and spending a lot of time ahead in the books and and out in the the field, but not a lot of time sort of recreationally. So I think a big trip with my wife and now our two kids, I think would be great. Any, uh, anywhere in particular? Oh, we'd love to go back to Europe. Um, and um, my, my, my wife's got an Italian background. I've got um, an English Irish sort of background originally. So um, just just going out there and getting right into that. But really anywhere, we'd go anywhere in the world together, I think would be lovely. Amazing. Fantastic. I love it when your uh, significant other is your favorite travel partner. Uh, oh, I, certainly. I feel the same way about my wife as well. Um, is there a book that you've read recently? It could be within your sphere of expertise in education or more broadly uh, that's caused you to to pause and reconsider a few things in your life. 
one of the most significant of books I've read in the last few years is um, Daisy Christodoulou's um, Seven Myths About Education. Um, it's, a, it's a real um, page turner and, and she's got a very pithy way of writing. But what's great about it is it takes some really um, common ideas about education and learning and just and just pulls them right apart and helps you really think about oh, what is what are we what it is we're trying to do here so i think it's a really powerful book for that reason fantastic is there one of those daisy's things? just a nice person as well she's just lovely yeah is there a myth that you that particularly stood out to you oh um there was seven of them and now you're testing me to see if i remember all <laughs> that's of them. okay but there's there's particular ones around um teaching knowledge versus skills and the idea Amazing. that in, in the curriculum there's this really big focus on outcomes and skills. And you can say that it's a pretty knowledge um, agnostic curriculum in, in many ways. There's a much bigger focus on what it is we're getting students to mm -hmm. do rather than what we're wanting them to know. And I think it, it really does a good job of unpacking just how um, challenging that is if, uh, if you don't think about knowledge and how important it is in the learning yeah. process. Fantastic. I will have to check that out and I'll provide links to all of the resources that you took about, talk about in our show notes. Um, mm. I'm just interested, Nathaniel, if you could have a dinner party with anybody who would be there? Um, obviously, your wife and kids don't count uh, in the seat count or not to get you in trouble. But is there anybody either currently with us or past that you would love to sit down with and have a meal with? Look, I would probably love to get people like um, some currently alive people who are leaders in the space of the science of learning. I think, you know, Dan Willingham, Stanislas Dehaan, um, people like Anita Archer and Sylvia Ybarra. Um, John Hollingsworth, all these people in that explicit instruction sort of space, um, the, the reading scientists like um, Marianne Wolfe. But look, I'd love to actually also get people like Piaget, Engelman and um, Dewey all in a room and see what they would do to each other. I think it'd be really interesting to see how they hash things out if you had the, the fantasy of, of having um, deceased people in there as well. Mm, I think that would be a a wonderful, eclectic and diverse <laughs> Uh, dinner conversation. I can only imagine what it would be when the when the wines start flowing as well. Um, mm. For those uh, that are not familiar with your work, actually, so let me rephrase that, Nathaniel. Um, take me back to the beginning. What was your uh, upbringing like, and what are you most grateful for from your family? Um, I'm a child of three, so I'm the middle child, um, and we grew up. Um, basically a big family of, of loving books and board games and doing a lot of extra things. So um, very big focus on education, a very importance of, and a love of learning, but um, also constantly going to um, sport. And um, I used to do dance and musical theatre and drama. And my, my brother actually left school to do dance full time. So there was a big focus on us being able to pursue those interests. So I think I'm really grateful to have those opportunities to go and try different things and to to get out there. So I was on the debating team, choir, musicals, um, choreography, um, you name it. I, I did so many different activities. And my mum basically spent a lot of my childhood just driving us from A to B. So um, very, very, very charmed childhood in that way that I could actually pursue those interests and develop a skill set in, in a lot of those different areas as well. Amazing. And what do you think um, musical theatre taught you? And what have you brought that brought into your what what if you what what how is that influence or your um mm. your approach to teaching i think um to be honest the hardest part about musical theater was not the performance and it wasn't the um you know the preparation or the learning of lines or dance moves or anything like that the most difficult part of that industry is taking um, that that risk of putting yourself out there and going in front of a mm -hmm. panel of people and, and you know in an audition sort of space and then just progressively getting rejected and rejected and rejected. So I think um, having 
having gone through so many experiences of, of trying my best with something and thinking I was going to make it and, you know, get into a musical or something like that and then just being rejected for the 10th time or getting right to the end, so five or six rounds and then suddenly, no, didn't make the cut for whatever reason with no feedback or anything. I think it made the whole um, aspect of teaching around being around people and performance and a big group of kids or, you know, trying to get people on side and win them over. I think that all was just a lot of fun for me because um, if you can, I, I sort of love job interviews, if that makes sense. Like I love standing in front of a group of people. Yeah. <laughs> and just having a nice chat and, and talking about things because nothing compares in terms of stress or um, the amount of vulnerability that you have to um, a, a song and dance audition where you're literally singing and dancing and hoping that they will accept you. So I've found a lot more success in job interviews than I have in auditions. So I think um, that that ability to throw myself into the deep end and to um, stand in front of a group of people that I, that I don't know and or, you know, a group that I'm not familiar with and, and really try and get something out of them and to to um, take them on an experience. I think that's what I really learned from that most of all. Yeah. Are, you, are you grateful for that experience? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Look, it makes you a lot it sounds more awful, resilient. But, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it sort of puts things into perspective, I think. And look, I learned amazing skills along the way. Like uh, I used to entertain my prep class last year with um, constant embedding of singing and dancing and, and all kinds of things into our day. Like instead of just providing an instruction about what's happening next, I would sing the instruction or I would um, do a call and response where I say one part, they say the other part. In the afternoons when everyone was really revved up from um, the break before the, the last session of the day, we would play Dead Fish. I would get the keyboard out and start um, playing a, a random song that I would just improvise because I used to do a bit of piano sort of singer songwriting stuff as well and then I would embed this is the fun bit I'd embed the vocabulary and the concepts and the the stories from what we talked about earlier in the day and give them an extra boost by incorporating all of those into like a story that I'd improvise with the musical background so it's like you know it's it's all that musical theater and drama that just constantly informs my work and um just gives me that sort of energy to just love being in front of a group of kids and or a group of adults uh, as I'm doing more more so now yeah, that that sounds wonderful. I can only imagine the um, the the structured chaos in your classroom when you bust <laughs> out the keyboard and start singing. But um, it sounds it it sounds wonderful. I mean, do you think that um, uh, what role do you think music education plays um for kids? Because it's something that I was really really scared about for so many years, and then I had the most wonderful lecturer um. Uh, Professor Deirdre Russell Bowie at the University of Western Sydney and she would get these uh, students in their early 20s dancing in the in the lecture theatres and carrying on and it was just such a a transformative experience for me being mm. in the class and, and and what role do you think the arts plays um, in uh, in sort of creating a well-rounded education system it sounds like it's really mm. transformative for you. Oh, certainly. I think it's a it's a really important part of a holistic sort of education and well rounded, as you said. I think um, for a long time, I thought, oh, you could you could teach anything through sync, through song and dance, or through um, yeah. drama. And I've probably moved back a little bit from that position, knowing that there's certain things that you don't need to do a song and dance about because it does sometimes make it more complicated than it needs to be. That's so there's certain things. Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, if you do, if you're trying to learn your maths facts, like I, <laughs> yeah. I learned my maths facts through a you song. Could, like yeah. my mum had these tapes. You know, back in the '90s, she'd play these tapes to learn my times tables. And Amazing. look, they were great songs. I used to like create dances to them. I got really into it. But at the end of the day, if I wanted to retrieve six sevens i'd have to sing the 
six times table song in order to get to six sevens. And that, that <laughs> yeah. just takes too long. So, you know, yeah. I would have benefited from random practice of, you know, learning the six times tables and then um, recalling yeah. those facts in random order, not having to sing it back in order in the tune and Amazing. so on. Cause it just, that, that sort of thing slowed me down in my math space. And eventually, you know, in English, I was always very comfortable and just all came very naturally, but in the math space, um, I probably, my, um, sort of numerical fluency did actually slow me down eventually and, and made me sort of think, oh, maths isn't my favorite thing. Even though mum was actually my maths teacher in year 10 and year 11 and I had to reject her in year 12 and say, mum, I'm not going to do maths in year 12 because it's going to affect my score. Like it's, <laughs> I'm not doing yeah. well enough in this and I, and I don't really understand what we're doing anymore. It's sort of, it's gone over my head. So um, who knows if I'd learned my maths um, facts, not through a song and dance, I might've thought about maths differently. Interesting. So um, I, I'm picking up a lot of things which seem um, unrelated. So musical extraordinaire, linguist, and speech <laughs> pathologist, they don't seem to... Um, How I, does I've it fit together? That, yeah. Yeah. Like I've heard the saying that it's very difficult to connect the dots looking forward, but looking back, they seem to make sense. I mean, tell mm. me about how you went from a... Um, uh, I'm sure you still are a, a, a drama performer um, to a linguist and then a speech pathologist. Tell me about that process and how did, um, what are some of the, the, the significant moments along that journey? So you could sort of frame the story as um, my resistance to letting my mum be right, if you like. So yeah, mum said, from, there. We have we've all been there. there. So yeah. we've all got a story like this. So and mum's always right in the end, right? So um, my mum from a, probably year 10 or year 11, we used to drop hints because she was a teacher, very passionate about education, you know, lifetime educator, still doing tutoring now in her retirement. She said, you would be a fantastic teacher because, you know, I used to choreograph the school musical. Um, right. I, I used to I used to volunteer on, you know, Thursday afternoons during this extracurricular time at, at my school to take a dance class with year sevens. Amazing. Like I, I just did a lot of, I literally did a lot of dance teaching. I, I did a formal qualification in dance teaching so it was very natural I think to 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 think well that's a good profession for me and mum was thinking what what is he going to do with this interest in um you know I liked Japanese and history and things like that so um I resisted that a lot and I said no I'm just gonna I'm gonna do my BA I'm gonna study Japanese and linguistics that's what I'm really passionate about and that's sort of where I headed and um I dropped the Japanese in second year because to be honest it's very hard to memorize all those kanji which is the the characters that you need to learn in order to do well writing and reading in Japanese yeah wow and eventually I just ran out of visual memory um for those characters and could not keep up so I thought you know, I'm not going to do my very best with this degree if I just plow through this without having to, without going overseas and actually in, engrossing myself in the um, in the culture, which I didn't have the opportunity to do. So I dropped the Japanese, stick with, stuck with the linguistics and filled it up with education subjects. So I ended up doing a whole lot of education subjects to finish my degree alongside my linguistics. So then at the end of the degree, I could have gone into an honours. I was really interested in voices and accents. So with my musical theatre background, I, was, I wanted to do yes. like an, an honours project looking at the Australian accent and mapping differences between South Australia versus, um, you know, Victoria and, and, yeah. and Sydney. And there are subtle differences there, which you can pick up along the way. And you, as you said, you've got a, a UK sort of background. So that influences your accent slightly. And I can pick up that now that you've said, you've told me that. Mm-hmm. So I could have done that, but then I really wanted to do something. I was, I think I'm feeling the pressure of, you know, what am I going to do with these really fantastical goals? And I wanted to think of a profession that I could actually apply this knowledge in and speech pathology was something just that fell in my lap and I just discovered I'd had no, never heard of it until about three months before the course started. 
So instead of the honours, I which I got into, I actually decided to do a Master of Speech Pathology. And that was just an opportunity, I guess, to visit all those linguistics and and also voice, because there's a big focus in voice um, in, with speech pathology, which I loved because yeah, yeah. as, as a singer, I was really interested in voice. Um, it was a focus on fluency, and, and but also language and literacy. Um, and through doing that, I then started working with school-aged children mainly. That's where I sort of ended up. I, I'm not sure why I could have gone into the adult space or work, work with singers or something like that with voice problems or... Um, something like that but um, in the school age space that's where I really came alive and, and really enjoyed working with both adolescents and, and school age children um, so the threads really weave together in that I sort of found myself back in schools even though I wasn't a teacher I was back in schools and working with with students and then working with their teachers um, and then fast forward a few years later I was doing my PhD was following up my interests in you know the how important language and literacy skills are for students well-being and I was working with young offenders and, and studying their language skills and, and helping them to improve some of their, their reading and writing, which often is a huge number of kids in youth justice who struggle with those skills. Um, and so I did my whole PhD on that group of people and, and really enjoyed that opportunity to work intensively with such a vulnerable population. And then after it was all finished, um, I actually um, had an opportunity to work as a lecturer because, you know, when you finish your PhD, you can work as a lecturer. And through that space, I then started lecturing in early childhood and language and literacy and just really feeling like, oh, I really, I'm missing out on something, you know, working with um, teachers as they're learning to be teachers, but not having the opportunity to go off and, and, and have my own classroom. I had my dance teaching background and I had all these informal qualifications in, in teaching, but didn't have the opportunity to go and do it for myself. So eventually I convinced my wife that I should go back and get yet another master's and train again as a teacher. And that was, it was, should be, to be honest, the most brilliant thing I could have done, even though my wife said, you've already got enough qualifications, just be happy with what you've got. Um, the fact that I could go and, and sort of fulfill my mum's lifelong dream for me to become an educator and a, and a classroom teacher was um, just a really important thing for me to do. And as soon as I had that opportunity to, to work with a class and to, to um, develop them over time and um, build those really strong relationships with their families and, and them as individuals, I, I sort of felt like you were, I was coming home. So all that knowledge I, I got from other areas suddenly became really helpful, um, but I was using them in a way that I hadn't been able to do before with, um, you know, that really important role that teachers have in, in um, holding that space for the learners that you have and creating a, um, creating a unique learning opportunity every single day for your students. Mm. And just take me back, Nathaniel, to your, um, to your PhD. What were mm. some of your findings and were there any surprises in your research? I think um, what I'd underestimated in the work that I did was, you know, I'd set out to try and support those young people with individualized sort of intervention and sort of giving them um, targeted sort of support from, um, you know, skills in their literacy or their language skills like vocabulary, sentence structure, um, learning to read and write and things like that. And I was of the opinion that if you just gave them the right sort of targeted individualized support, that that's, that's what they would need to get the boost that they mm -hmm. needed. But what I'd underestimated is just how important those everyday learning experiences are with their classroom teacher, because that's the, the people that they're going to be able to use, spend the most time with and that um, have the, the best opportunity, I think, to make inroads in, in whatever those skills are that students are struggling with. So I think um, I learned from that that teachers didn't feel confident a lot of the time teaching um, struggling readers or struggling writers in the upper years or didn't know how to um, you know, make 
the very complex English language understood by a, a, an, an older learner or a, sort of a late primary school student who's struggling to with the basics or struggling with those foundations. And I felt like, oh, that's that's knowledge that teachers should really have, um, and they should be empowered to to know what to do when they've got a learner in front of them who's not accessing the curriculum or not not able to use um, the skills that they need in order to get into um, the yes. learning that their peers are doing. So I think that's the biggest takeaway is that. Um, yes, it was helpful getting the individual support. I was able to show a benefit of of having you know a, you know one on one intervention, and um, there was certainly a need that I discovered in in youth justice sort of populations. But um, what potentially would have happened um, if those students had received really um, enriching and and really effective learning experiences much earlier by their classroom teacher, most of all, that a lot of them potentially would have avoided the trajectories that they were on in terms of you know, disengagement from school and, um, you know, in, involvement in, in sort of um, in criminal sort of activity later on because of that lack of the protective factor of the school. So my shift passion and my focus shifted, I think, after that to thinking about um, how do we best support learners to get the most out of every learning experience that they have and, and to help them feel successful early on so that they don't develop those negative self-views. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, Nathaniel, there's there's so much in that and almost a sort of a podcast series in itself. Um, I have so many questions rolling around in my head, but um, I did just want to ask you to change direction slightly. Mm, sure. Um, you mentioned that you were a father of two children. Uh, mm. What has, um, what's being a dad taught you? Oh, <laughs> just um, <laughs> an admiration for parents, I think, and an admiration for my parents putting up with all the developmental sort of stages that student that the student that kids go through, and my own kids, it's a very intense period at the moment. There's they're um, turning five and turning three, a boy and a oh, girl. Exactly, this and is the um, same. same as me. It's Two the girls, time. Five and three. It's a lot, and it's just you know young you know young children they they've just got a lot going on for them in terms of their emotions and in terms of their you know wanting to exert their their mark on the world and it's just um it's a lot to handle sometimes when you're trying to just get through the day and trying yeah. to um trying to um get them organized whether it's to, to go out together or to get them ready for kinder or something like that so i think that that what i've really learned is that there's just an inordinate amount of patience and um determination that you need as a parent to help your child through those you know challenges that they experience or those opportunities where they're trying to push back because they they have a really strong voice and they've got a yeah. they've got a will that they want to exert upon the world i think which is incredible to watch how they grow from these really dependent and needy creatures when they're first born into these very um self-determining and and very empowered um children even at five and three yeah and um has it has it changed the way that you approach learning as a parent? And I'm asking from one uh, one dad to another here um, because it's it, it's really difficult. I know my daughter's come home with my daughter comes home with their homework, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I should know how to do this because I'm a dad and all of that <laughs> kind of stuff. Like, is that the same with you? Like, is it has it changed the way you approach learning with your kids? I think it's um, it's solidified for me, I guess some of the um the patience that educators need and that the the just the the determination that they need in order to set up learning experiences i you know my son's starting school next year so i haven't seen just right. what happens in that shift yet so i've i've seen all of these great um roles that early childhood educators and kinder teachers play um and i've loved 
watching and my, my son's kinder for instance have a really rich program where they they not only give them lots of opportunities for exploration and play but but also embed a lot of interesting ideas and content and sort of indigenous perspectives and histories right. and ge geography so my son comes home talking about all these stories and um facts that he's he's learned along the way and um the nature walk that he's been on and the interesting indigenous names of the, the local area for different birds so he'll know the Wurundjeri word for magpie and for crow and things like that and That's you know I, I think I'm I'm in awe of of just how much you know kids can learn when, when teachers are intentional about the things that they embed in those everyday experiences so um for me it's like it just shows just the power of education and and how I'm, I'm really grateful for where my my son is attending kinder and I'm, I'm hoping he does make a really easy, smooth transition to school because that's a really big um, stress for, for parents is how's my child going to go transitioning to school. Um, so if anything, I've learned that there's just a lot of a lot of things that happen before the kids enter the school gates um, right. and the first part of school, which is my, where my focus as, as, a, as a teacher sort of begins. Um, and I focus on primary, particularly at the moment. So th there's just a lot of histories that, that children bring with them and a lot of, um, you know, um, opportunities for learning that happen before they enter school. And um, yeah, it's just a big thing to get your head around, I think. Fantastic. How do you like, how do you do it all though? I mean, you're, you obviously did your PhD. There's a number of areas that you're really passionate about, but you've still got to be a dad and you've still got to function. I mean, is it, have you got better at it? Um, do you have any advice from one dad to the next? Look, I think it's it's been a bit of just kindness to myself that I can let right. my outside of work productivity completely drop off for big periods of these really busy times. I've tried to be really hands-on with my kids. My wife obviously has, has taken the biggest um, amount of time off and, and, and really spent that time with the kids in those early years. I've kept right. working but really tried to take a lot of... Um, take a lot of the pressure off her in terms of um, other duties around the house and, and also just being really involved. And, and um, I think just being kind to yourself that if you do, want, if you've got big goals for yourself and you've got big interests and they're career related, that you, you're not always going to feel like you're making inroads all the time because your kids have to come first and um, your, your dedication to whatever's going on in your household has to come first. And for me, that's been an adjustment because I've always been a really driven and um, multitasking sort of person where I'm constantly having lots of things juggling. And I still do that, but I just, I'm not used to, even in now it's been nearly five years, I'm still not used to the adjustment of, I, I don't have all the plates spinning exactly how I want them to. And I always feel like I'm behind and things like that. So a bit of self-kindness, I think, for myself and, and potentially for other dads or mums out there who you know, are used to pushing themselves quite hard because you just have to know that, there's so many challenges that come up along the way, whether it's, yeah. you know, the, the unexpected accidents that happen or, you know, the, you put them down to bed, but then it's a, an hour or two later where lots of issues and stuff occur in, in those, that times afterwards, just when you think you're free, you've, you've got all that work to do still to help your child to, to settle and everything like that. So yeah. it's all those unexpected moments that you sort of have to find the resilience as a parent to sort of invest in. Do you, do you think you've got better at that as a parent? Look, I think I've probably gotten, more reasonable expectations of what I can do in a day. Um, I think I've tried to always, you know, adjust my um, my modes of, of, of working so that when I'm at home, I'm really present. And I'm, I'm trying to be really with my kids. I'm constantly distracted by things, you know, ping, pinging on my phone. I have to really try and put that away. I think it's a really big challenge for parents in this day and age. But I think I've probably gotten better at 
switching off if I need to switch off. And that's been helpful for being present, but also being helpful and, um, you know, preemptive of what we need as a family to, to get us through yeah. the, to the afternoon or to when the kids go to sleep and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Look, uh, I appreciate the advice. I mean, we've got kids of similar age <laughs> and, and it's difficult. Like I, I, I feel the guilt because I spend so much time with other people's kids and then I come to my kids and, and quite often I'm a little bit cranky or I'm thinking of other things. And I um, mm. recently did an interview with a, a brilliant educator called Dr. Adam Fraser and he was talking about the importance of deciding how to show up. And so mm. that's a question that I've been asking not only personally, mm professionally like how do I actually want to show up now um and I think that's a it's a really important question sometimes I'll stand literally stand at the front of our, our house and take five seconds and say okay like now I'm a dad you know or mm. now I'm a husband or now I'm a, and it's the same with meetings you go from one thing to the next mm. but actually taking the time to go no like now I need to be this and yeah, I shifting find that when gears I'm multitasking, almost. it's 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 yeah, it's really really challenging. But um, look, I I, I appreciate your uh, honesty, Nathaniel, and I'll um definitely be in touch with some. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so I'll be asking some questions as my kids get older. Uh, but it's a uh, it's it, it's both a chaotic time, but also a really um a really wonderful and stretching time. And mm -hmm. um, if we were to uh, ask those people that were closest to you, so either your wife or your kids, I promise you we haven't got them uh, on another Zoom call and we won't be <laughs> in. But what would they say about what you're like um, once the podcast microphone goes off? What I'm like um, as a dad, I guess, or yeah. what I'm like in general? Yeah, like what are you like sort of uh, after hours? Um, that's a good question. I think probably... Um, I like to be quite, um, like I like to bring a lot of fun and a lot of silliness into, into our lives. So, um, my daughter, who's very, very talkative and, and definitely coming into her own as, as putting her stamp on the world, just loves to police when I start to do things that are a bit silly. Cause I love to just, you know, put on silly voices and stuff. She's got this thing now where she says no silly voices. I don't like it. I so she, I, I'd, I'd like to push the envelope and probably a little bit of a, um, uh, a jester Manic in that way and, yes yeah. yeah and like my my kids do the same thing so they they throw themselves in front of the mirror at the moment and they both do this thing they're constantly jump, jumping up and down and singing and dancing and my daughter liked to do that in the middle of dinner even now and so we're, we're trying to teach her that it's probably not best to jump up and down when you're when you're about to eat but i think that's probably a bit of me rubbing off in terms of um that playfulness and and that um that love of of you know the silly or the um the comedic um, I think probably they probably see me as um, someone who loves reading and loves um, learning. Like we do a lot of really sort of engrossing activities at home. We, we, we do a lot of um, incidental sort of conversations about interesting things in the world. I love to um, see what my son has to say about different topics and I follow his interests. So he, he constantly asks me big questions and I, I don't shy away from giving them sort of big answers and, and trying to really explain concepts. So he was asking what's smaller than small. And I was like, oh, I don't know. What do you think? And he said, um, well, tiny is smaller than small. Right. And so then we got into a big discussion, I guess, about 
um, even smaller things and then it turned into even bigger things. So I introduced him to the term um, I love that. minuscule instead yeah. of tiny. And then from minuscule, he said, what's smaller than minuscule? And so I had to think, oh, what's smaller than minuscule? Oh, okay, what about microscopic? How about that? Oh, wow. And then like, what's, what's smaller than that? And so, you know, I kept going into these even smaller things. So nanoscopic and then I went molecular and then atomic. And I didn't shy away, I guess, because I, I always think that if a child's curiosity is leading the the learning then you can there's never a limit that you have to place on where you, you can go with that discussion so on the opposite end he sort of talking about started talking about big and we went he said big and then large and then enormous he came up with and then he said what's bigger than that so we went to things like humongous and colossal and amazing. he he made he actually made the link between is that like the coliseum which is really amazing i thought amazing. so colossal is, is actually connected etymologically to the coliseum which was the big stadium in, in rome and um the Colossus is, is, is where that sort of word colossal comes from. So it's, um, it is amazing. I think how, when you, when you have high expectations of what kids can do, um, you can, you can get them to, you know, really follow that interest and, and follow those lines of inquiry. And my, I'm amazed, I think at how uh, much my child remembers and, and my daughter remembers as well. So I think, I'd like to think that my kids see me in that way of, of a lover of learning and they could ask me any question and I'll have, I'll come up with some sort of answer for them. Amazing. And um, it, it's hard though, isn't it? Like when you're, when you're tired, you know, and you've got to the end of the day and you've been dealing with people all day, it's hard to be that, um, that present person. And um, as we were talking before we hit record, mm. um, I, I just had one of those evenings with my kids where, you know, you, you're at them all the time to try and finish their dinner and get into mm. bed. And, like, is it, do you, it, am I the only one that finds it tricky or do you have moments? No, it's, go, this is yeah. the toughest thing I've ever done. Yeah, it is. It's, it does. I was hinting at before with them putting their mark on the world. It's they, they want to push back on a lot of things. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's a natural thing where they, they start to see what's possible in terms of pushing the boundaries. And it is, you find yourself like, like this taskmaster because you don't want them to go to bed at 9 PM. You're trying to get them on that routine so that they mm -hmm. can get to bed at a decent time. Cause you know how important the sleep is and this, this pressure on parents to try and meet those expectations. And look, you can find yourself, yeah, find like, prompting them constantly and you know yeah. on their back about things and it is it's hard because ideally it's all roses and sunshine and romance and everything like that but just like school teaching i think sometimes learning can and, and you know the the developmental process can be tricky and that some kids find certain stages harder than others so um you, you have to weigh the good with the bad and, and try and i guess shape those interactions so that they're as positive as possible but knowing that you do have to create mm -hmm. boundaries and you have to create um expectations as well because if well, if you just lower the bar to try and make it easy then you're going to create problems for yourself later both as a teacher but also as a parent yeah absolutely and um nathaniel um what is a science of learning specialist what does what does one do and and why is that a significant part of um what consumes your life now so um you're referring to there a, a, i thought a clever combination of um in melbourne and victoria they have things called learning specialists in schools and yeah. um which is like a lead teacher sort of role but focusing particularly on learning and um i thought it was quite clever that i combined the science of learning which is uh, i guess a catch-all for the the information that can inform teaching and, and learning that comes from um the sciences including linguistics but also cognitive science psychology um even neuroimaging and things like that and what i did in in that role in my previous role before i came to latrobe as a lecturer which is what i'm doing now um i in my school i sort of self-styled myself as a um science 
this because I really wanted my work with teachers and my colleagues to be about how can we use the scientific principles of learning and teaching inform our practice um, because much of what we do in schools unfortunately hasn't caught up with some of the things that we've learned um, from that research in the, in the last um, few decades mm. and um, an instructional coaching is that is that related to that I know in um, in New South Wales where I'm phoning from um, uh, we used to have instructional coaches um, yeah there um, uh, have been rebranded to um, assistant principals for curriculum instruction, but my master's yep. was actually in instructional leadership, as we talked about mm. before. But what is instructional coaching and why um, is that so important? So to answer your question, it is definitely related to the work that I did as a learning specialist. And um, it was intrinsic to it because it's all about uh, how how do I um, work with a teacher, a colleague of mine who, who might be teaching a different year level to me or the same year level. Um, how do I um, help them to reflect on their own practice and to see um, any potential opportunities for improving any aspect of the learning process, whether it's from the, the simple sort of engagement or um, getting kids ready for learning or getting them into a, a strong routine so that um, the teaching process is easier, all the way down to how do I explain you know, help that teacher to explain things more clearly or to to um, help with smooth transitions between different parts of the lesson or expanding on the student's um, ideas and, and making it a, a strong driver of discussion, any aspect really. I think the, the coaching element is because teaching is a really um, people-centered approach um, to any any sort of career. It's, it's, it's intrinsically tied to how that dynamic works in real time. And you can learn about things in theory and you can, you can talk about ideas of practice and have great discussions but to actually see it for yourself in your own classroom and also to see a video of yourself teaching is a really powerful thing um, and to get insights from another like an instructional coach to help to illuminate things or to draw out your own awareness of different aspects of your practice is incredibly powerful so i think that that's why there's a, a big focus on instructional coaching in the last few years and and if you turn your attention to things that have really high impact and um, i'm not saying that all schools are finding that easy to identify really tangible and really um, high yield sort of goals. I think that's actually quite hard to do, but where schools are doing that really well, instructional coaching becomes a great opportunity to hone our skills as teachers. And I think the coaches learn as much from those experiences as the, the teachers do. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some of the um, uh, sort of cultural uh, things that make instructional coaching thrive in a school like I, I would imagine that things like um a trust and accountability are really important but is there anything else that um that, that is kind of essential for this process to work well in schools I think there's a, a lot of debates at the moment about what instructional coaching should look like I know there's quite a continuum between sort of your most um sort of self-directed or um uh, sort of learner-centered approaches, which, you know, it's aligned with sort of the, the approach that growth um, international sort of do, yeah. the growth coaching sort of approach. That's really sort of very non-directive, very driven by whatever the teacher wants to work on. And and, and there isn't a lot of um, sort of set guidance by the, the coach. Then there's um, the opposite end of that, which is more um, a, a sort of modeling and directive based approach where I'll, I'll say this is a new strategy for you or this is a new practice you haven't seen this before um, I'm going to actually teach something teach this teach with this strategy with your class and I'll show you an aspect of the lesson that I'm talking about and then I want you to watch and, and sort of unpack it and then 
I'll help you basically to, to add that to your toolkit so that when it's the right time in your practice, you can draw upon that. And so that's a completely different approach where you're going to assume and to, to jump into that um, mode of there is something here that I want to teach you as a, as a learner, because teachers are learners as well, um, and giving them an opportunity to see it really explicitly and to see it modeled and also the benefit of seeing it with their own class. Because yeah. a lot of um, new approaches are, are stymied, I think, by teachers thinking that, oh, my class wouldn't be able to cope with that. Or, you know, my class is different. Like, I just couldn't get that to happen. So I think in the middle, there's things like the gym night sort of instructional coaching approach, which is probably a mix of both of those. There is an element of direction and there's an element of drawing um, drawing out different um, reflections from video um, reflections and things like that. Um, but there, there is some element of guidance as well. But um, I, I think whichever approach you choose, um, it, it the really important things that make coaching work well is um, a sense that it's something worthwhile. Um, the, the teacher themselves have to be have to be open to actually thinking that this is something uh, like that I should spend my time on. And that if you do set goals in those sessions, which um, good coaching models should include the, the setting of goals and the setting of practice and things like that, that um, if you, you should basically follow up on those goals. Because if you just have a coaching conversation, you talk about a lesson and then the teacher goes off and closes their door and continues on their merry way, then you might as well not have done any of it. So there needs to be some level of commitment or some level, level of structure that says, well, this is um, something that we're doing as a school that we're wanting to get better at. Um, it might feel a little bit different. It might feel a bit foreign, but we want you to give this a go. And I think if you have that culture of teachers allowing themselves to be vulnerable and to reflect on their practice really openly, I think there's brilliant things that can happen because I don't think any teacher would say that they're you know completely proficient in any aspect of teaching. Like we're constantly learning, constantly experimenting, constantly trialing things. Um, so yeah, I think having that openness and that vulnerability is really, really, really key. Um, in terms of your teaching practice at the moment, mm. what's something that you feel um, kind of out of your depth in or a little bit vulnerable in? Are you Is there an area that you are um, trialing and you feel like a bit of a novice in at the moment? Well, I've, um, so I've recently stepped out of the classroom to take on my role as a lecturer at La Trobe. So I'm completely missing the classroom all the time, but yeah. in the, in, in the work, in the work that I'm doing with adult learners now in preparing teachers, I think um, certainly there's some, some aspects of the curriculum that I'd love to get my teeth into and, and that I'd love to see how it plays out. So yeah. I, I probably didn't get enough chance, enough of a chance to work with the upper years of primary or, you know, to applying the same knowledge to the early years of secondary, particularly looking at things like novel studies and, and really getting um, students aesthetic appreciation for for language, not just the the sort of foundational skills and, and the, the big focus that's there in the, in the early years on trying to understand the text, but actually try to analyze the text and, and really make sense of it as a thing and, and what it's saying about the world. So I think that, you know, I, I don't, I'm the first person to admit that, you know, anytime that I go off and spend time in the classroom, I'm going to get so much out of that. And whenever I do school visits now um, in, in a different capacity um, by helping or working with schools, I think, my, my proviso is get me into a classroom and, and get me in front of students, whatever we use it for, or like, you know, it might be modeling, it might be um, trialing, experimenting different ideas, but I just, I'm craving that time in, in front of the, the yeah. class because um, there's, there's so much you learn from that interaction day on day. Um, and it's magic. 
It really it is. It, like, you, yeah, it, that's the word for it. Is that it does yeah. become magical, especially when you get that flow, right? You you sort yeah. of you have that that synergy between you as the educator yeah. and them as the learner, and you sort of have that back and forth process of um, I'm learning from you, you're learning from me, um, and that is where it's magical. And I think I would I'd, I would say that there's many things that I would love to in, increase my confidence and my capacity with. Um, in in my teaching i think maths is another area that i am just craving to get better and and to get more experience doing for myself as well as um learning about sort of in in the work that i do now thinking about instructional practice um i'm really i feel confident in the early literacy space and that, i think that's where my, my strengths are with my linguistics backgrounds and i feel like I've, I've made some inroads there but yeah that that's only a, a you know when you look at it it's an important part of the curriculum but it's not the only part and um, certainly in the secondary space, like there's just, there's so much to, to learn there as well. So I might find myself in secondary settings later in my career, I think. Yeah. Amazing. And so you, you miss the classroom. Uh, what is yeah, it? Yeah, I really do. Yeah. That's it. And how long were you uh, practicing in the classroom? And um, was it something that you um, instantly felt um, drawn to while you're there? Or tell me about that. So I only got a few years in before I then was whipped away into um, doing uh, this amazing job at La Trobe, which I have. So I've, I've, I'm very lucky. I'm part of a new school of education at La Trobe where, where we're really trying to put the science of learning to practice. So it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. But to be honest, when when I first received the offer, I, I had to think really carefully and I really resisted. I thought, oh, could I do both? Could I stay in the classroom and do this sort of part time? I was just loving what I was doing and I was loving the work I was doing as an instructional coach and, and just that mix of working working with my own learners, um, helping teachers with their classes of students. Mm. And I think what I really enjoyed about it was, and what really came to me quickly was just that um, that love of being in the moment with with a group of learners and, and really, it, it, it's a sandbox really, you know, the classroom is an opportunity to try different things and to explore. And um, the the beauty of all the professional learning that I was facilitating with the the charity that I run for, for teachers called Think Forward Educators was um, I was learning about all of these great things. And and once I had the particular group that that was relevant to, I, you know, had already, I already had ideas of things that I wanted to try out because I'd um, facilitated so many discussions with amazing people, just like you do on your podcast, um, where, you know, you just want to grab those ideas and run with them. Um, so for me, it was it's an it was an opportunity to interact and to really enjoy getting to know all these amazing little individuals. And um, in the primary setting, they that's so interesting to watch as the years go by and how their personalities sort of develop and change and what they learn. Um, but also the opportunity to, I guess, see how I could use all my skills in other areas from dance teaching and linguistics and, and speech path, uh, for instance, to really draw out every um, moment and and have a, a chance to get the most out of every sort of situation with, with students. I think I was really satisfied when I felt like, oh, I did that. Um, mm. That was a much faster transition. So I got more time on Amazing. the mat where we could do this, or, you know, I, I got more kids doing this independently this time. So they're able to do their, you know, write a whole story by themselves like that. That was incredibly satisfying work to see that the, the work that you were doing in class was then having an impact on what they could do by themselves. Cause that independent learning is obviously what we're aiming for every student to have at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. I, um, I, I find that really interesting, Nathaniel, um, about that transition sort of out of the classroom and also mm. people's transition into the classroom, because I, mm. um, I could not imagine myself doing anything else, but mm. also everyone that I've spoken to, that has transitioned out of the classroom has said the same thing at some point. Mm. And so that process of, um, I would imagine for you 
um, understanding that that while you can have a very significant impact on a smaller number of people mm. within your classroom, now being a university lecturer and doing some amazing innovative 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 things means mm. that you can have a broader impact at a bigger scale. Uh, it was that sort of that must have been a really difficult decision, as you alluded to. And do you ever look back and go, oh? I wonder if I've made the wrong decision. I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> or do you sort of conveniently arrange your schedule so you can spend time in classrooms? I do a bit of both. I think, um, look, I, it's a it's a remarkable opportunity that I've got now to work yes, with um, teachers as they're starting to train. So I think that's what I remind myself of is that these are teachers that will go off and do amazing things with their own students. So having an opportunity to um, give them great learning experiences in becoming and being prepared to be a teacher um, is what drives me now. And I think, you know, as you said, I just arrange things so I can spend as much time back in the classroom where I can, because I get so much out of it. And I just, I, not only do I love teaching, I love talking about teaching. I'm, I'm one of those people that, um, I live and breathe this profession and I, you know, I, my hobby is, you know, teaching and the science of teaching and learning. Like that, that's what I, that, that's all I'm really interested in. So on the weekend, if you asked me what I did, if I had an afternoon to myself and my kids were off doing something else, I would be reading books on that topic. I'd be listening to podcasts. I'd be writing on on those topics because um, there's just there's just never enough that I can get from okay. the the knowledge that people have and that they're sharing on this area and um, the things that you can learn from what other people have tried in their own classroom and and what research is now showing. Um, so yeah, I think um, it's hard to leave the classroom and I'm, I do miss it, but I know that it's going to be constantly. A reference point and a, an opportunity to, to return to in in the the yeah. career that I move on to now. Yeah, absolutely, Nathaniel. As I said, there is a whole podcast series and a number <laughs> of that you've raised, and I'm just interesting interested. Sorry, um, did you have a teacher that really made an impact in your life? And um, yeah, explain. Tell me about that. Mm. So I did. I, I had a um a year for teacher who I think I had maybe two years in a row who um, was just very um, encouraging. And I think I was one of those students that was probably a bit precocious in and, you know, threw myself into things and was, was very handy and helpful in the classroom. So um, I was encouraged by that teacher to really to follow my interests with my writing. And so I ended up writing like a, I've spoken about this on another podcast. I I've, I've, I've wrote, wrote basically like a, a little fantasy novel, if you like. And that teacher was so encouraging that I sort of, it started with one chapter and turned into like a, a you know, 11 chapter sort of epic. And I've still got the, the manuscript here with all Amazing. my illustrations and things as well. Um, and my very scratchy handwriting, which I think I probably needed some more explicit instruction in, to be honest. But um, the, 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 what made that teacher amazing was that, you know, he really saw, I guess, my, um, my voice as a writer and as a, and as a student. So there was an opportunity for me to really um, follow my interest and to, to go further. And it ended up being like a play that we put on. So I, t I turned it into a play nice. and then I ran um, sort of um, the production for that and, you know, audition people to take the roles and directed it and, you know, able to see something from fruition all the way. And so I think that's what opened my, my eyes to say, well, that I originally thought myself to take up the, um, the entertainment industry and to, you know, either to be a, a performer or a, or a writer or a director or something like that. And um, I think it was just, yeah, eye opening, I guess, to have a teacher that believes in the, really the power of ideas yeah and and the opportunity to sort of follow your interest all the way through i think that was what what a great what what my wow. most most revered teacher i think um did for me and i think that's so 
significant Nathaniel because I know how busy classrooms are and how much stuff we have to get through and it would have been very easy for this teacher of yours just to say well no that's not part of what I would like to teach you today or that's not part mm. of this and I think that says a lot about um mm. I mean interruption is the wrong word because I don't feel like students interrupt us because I think that's they're the reason why we're here but it would have been very easy for this teacher just to kind of said oh they're there Nice one. Mm. Or to say, well, you know, this, you know, um, Nathaniel's like doing fine. He doesn't need a lot of my help. Like I need to help these other kids that are probably struggling. So I'll just keep him busy with something. Yeah, exactly. So he was able to make space. It is amazing. Have you had a chance to thank that teacher? Um, Not recently. I think I probably reached out to them towards the end of my high school, but I'd probably, it'd be interesting to see what he's up to now. Um, I know he's he's, he's got his own family. He lives out in the country where I, where I went to primary school. So um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what he's up to now. Yeah. I, um, I did an interview with a a teacher of mine, Uh, interestingly in year four, uh, the vast Mm. majority of people, when I ask that question, talk about their teachers in year three and year four. So I wonder wonder what that says about that formative time in your life. But Mm. I had a teacher called Mrs. Taylor Jones, who was my year three teacher. Um, And she um, was just one of those teachers that made a difference. And I had the privilege of Mm. having her on my podcast and, um, she had no idea of the impact that she'd made. And I think that is just a wonderful um, uh, reminder of the uh, unsung heroes that our teachers are. Um, mm. And he made me every time we were going through a particularly challenging um, time in our family where our family split up and I knew mm. every single day when I went into her classroom that I felt valued and known. And I'm sure she did that for every single student in the class and every student since, but Interestingly, I had, I have absolutely no idea what she taught me in her class. Um, <laughs> I don't remember. I don't, re- and it would have been, I, I, I know the curriculum would have been something to do with shapes and angles and measurement, mm. but, and, and I'm sure she taught me all of those things, but I, I just had no idea, but I remembered. That's how not she, what you remembered. Yeah. Yeah. I remembered how she made me feel. And I'm sure this is the same for your teacher. Mm. You remembered he, he didn't sort of push you away and um, disregard your ideas. He embraced them. And I think that's, I, I wonder if your trajectory in life would have been different um, if he mm. hadn't done that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a reminder of these about. moments, isn't it? That we, mm. um, I always say to my team, like there is no such thing as a throwaway comment and moments are really important because mm. you never know the impact that you will have. And I think that's, I think that's really wonderful, um, Nathaniel. And mm. you mentioned before, um, and I, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, I'm very aware that uh, it is getting late. Um, but you mentioned before that that teaching um, in whatever form, whether it would be lecturing or teaching in the classroom, mm. or learning about learning, or all of that stuff um, mm. consumes your uh, consumes your life. Um, do you ever get to switch off? Is it something that you have got? um better at or yeah i think um being a parent forces you to so um when as i was hinting at before like if you if you do if you try and be present as a as a parent you automatically have to switch off because you have to stop thinking about work or um different ideas or you, you can't you can't um sort of be multitasking in that way if you are truly present so i think that has really grounded me i think um 
I'm, I'm good at binging addictive TV shows. I think that's a pretty big escape for me. And as a lot of people are finding in this age of golden television. Um, so I, I think those are probably two big things I'd love, you know, as my, my, um, idealist self would love to be sitting and reading more things like, you know, novels and things like that. But I do find myself, most of my reading is taken up with nonfiction and catching up on, you know, great books that teachers have, have written or research sort of summaries and, and things like that. So I think switching off is hard because I know that personal time is also time that I could use to, to go towards all these other interests. Um, but it, it certainly um, is important to do that when you're in the moment with your family and, and also, um, you can't think about work all the time. So I think even if you're really passionate about it, like I am, um, it's, it's, it's good to think of other things because there's, there's obviously a whole world out there that's not just in your profession that, um, that could be helpful as well for whatever problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. Is there an area in your life, Nathaniel, that you are currently under-investing in that you would like to um, pour more of your focus in at the moment? Oh, look, I'd love to start um writing up some of my um songs again i used to write a whole lot of songs in my sort of undergraduate sort of years and when i when we had kids i i basically started putting together like a a whole playlist of um songs for songs for parents so you know Amazing. i'd love to actually sit back and, and listen back to all those recordings that i've made and my kids are actually starting to write their own little songs which is really cute um, so I try and capture those, but I'd love to go and, and, and grab all of those and, and reflect upon them and develop them into something that people could listen to. I think that's a passion of, of mine to, to share those sort of little creations that I'd happen to create in the moment. Um, but yeah, that, that would be something I'd love to do. Amazing. Um, Nathaniel, um, tell me about uh, counterintuitive teaching and why um, is that a focus um, at the moment for you? What does that mean for those people that are not aware of the um, of the term? Mm. So I've used that term of teaching that's counterintuitive because I think there's some lessons that we can learn from the science of learning um, and the uh, research into how our brains work yep. that um, actually flip some of the things that we, we sort of take as a given as teachers. Um, one of, a good example would be um, just the importance of background knowledge for um, basically anything that you learn about and, and just how important understanding of um, different concepts are that, you know, you can't actually train up generic skills the way that people probably think you can, that, that, that all of these things that we want to do, like creativity and collaboration and, um, you know, critical thinking, a lot of these relate to particular areas of knowledge. And so when you, I guess, you know, as a teacher, you might have the intuition to say, who knows about this topic? Um, and it might be, who knows about, um, I don't know, um, Shakespeare's Macbeth. And you, you sort of open up an open question. You're trying to build up a discussion about what people already know about it because you're about to teach them. And, um, it seems like an intuitive strategy that makes sense. But, um, the, what some of the research shows is that when you ask, those open-ended questions at the beginning of the learning, what it can actually do is um, for the kids that don't know anything about that topic, which is usually your less privileged kids, actually then sort of get deflated and say, well, I don't know anything about that topic. And so they might even tune out while the, the more precocious sort of ones are saying, well, my I've gone to see that play before, or, you know, I'm not sure how many year eights have actually seen the play Macbeth before, but, um, you know, they in should. my day, yeah. there were there were some school productions of Macbeth you could go and see. I'm not sure if they're still doing them now, but, um, you know, there's kids that would have maybe heard of that play before, or if you're in the theatre, you know, in Macbeth, you can't say the word Macbeth when you're in a the theatre, you have to say the Scottish play. You know, there's, there's little tips 
tidbits that other mm. kids might know. And that by my first teacher be like, oh, good. My kids know something about this topic and then I'll start launching into it. But um, the reason why the opposite is actually more helpful is because if you teach first and give an opportunity for students to get a basic introduction to what you're talking about, you can then ask checking for understanding questions that um, engage the learners in a similar way to what that other original question asked, but actually levels the playing field. So you could give them a basic introduction saying that Macbeth is a play written by Shakespeare. And we've learned about Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which is what we studied last semester. Um, Romeo, uh, Romeo um, sorry, Shakespeare's Macbeth is a, is a famous play often referred to as the Scottish play. Um, and then you ask a question about what you've just sort of talked about. You might watch a small clip or something. And then you've activated your learners um, for the start of that sequence of learning without alienating them at the same time. So th there's other ones in there that I think are really powerful. I think we're, we're often we're often pushed as teachers to think about, you know, how do I get my students directing the learning all by themselves? And we, we feel bad if we explicitly teach them things. I think we've been trained in that Piaget sort of Dewey sort of view that explicitly teaching sort of takes away their opportunity to figure it out for themselves. But there's very little evidence to show that with um, novice learners, um, that there's much benefit to sending them off and, and helping letting them discover things by themselves. When you're working with true novices who, who either don't know anything about the topic or, or don't have a lot of skills, say in the literacy and numeracy that you're trying to teach them, getting them to teach themselves is actually gonna be a lot less successful and is also gonna amplify some of those differences in your class. So, you know, the kids that are most advantaged or have the museum visits or the trips overseas are gonna be able to go off and inquire about a topic about ancient history a lot more than the kids right. that um, have those other um, challenges um, and or, or have different experiences that aren't related to the academic topic. Mm -hmm. So I think um, the reason it's counterintuitive is because um, you we're sort of trained to, to think in this way of, you know, it's better to let them discover it for themselves. But there's actually some aspects of teaching and, and many um, things when you're working with novices where you actually want to do the opposite of that and help to level the playing field by thinking about what do I want my students to learn and, and how do I sequence it in a way that that builds it up for them. Yeah. That is a, a wonderful answer. And um, Nathaniel, like I said, I'd, I do want to be respectful of your time, but I just have one more um, sure. question. Um, imagine we were sitting down uh, in your favorite coffee shop in Melbourne and I was uh, considering, uh, sorry, I was about to step foot into the classroom for the first time. Um, mm. What sort of short piece of advice would you give me to make sure that I remain passionate and love my job in 10 years time? I think just knowing that the reality is um, that teaching is really hard and that it's there is an art to it, but there's also there's a science to it as well. Um, I also think that it's something that you can get better at. So you don't have to think that teaching is this innate quality that you have um, and that you're going to find it easy straight away. And that, you know, some people do, they've, they've stepped into the classroom, they just have this presence and kids listen to them and then, you know, they're able to facilitate things and they've got good intuitions and things like that. But it's um, not everyone um, will feel like that when they first enter the classroom and it's okay to feel like it's clunky and it's messy mm. and um, you don't know exactly how to structure your time. So I guess um, I would advise that, that person or yourself, for instance, to just be open to the fact that there's going to be a lot of trial and error and that, you know, you want to rely on those, those good strategies, those instructional practices that are going to set you up for success and also set high expectations in your classroom and know that it's, you're not going to get it right first shot. It's, it's, it's definitely a process of um, trying what works best for you and, and what works best for your group of learners, but knowing that you're learning as much as they are learning in that process. Amazing. Um, 
Nathaniel, that is a wonderful place to finish our conversation today. <laughs> and I'm so, I'm just so incredibly grateful that you'll take the time to talk with me. Um, and I'll make sure that I put all of the resources to uh, the conversation that we had today in our show notes. And I'm really grateful. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode. Music.